Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 24th of February. And on the show this week, we had three hot topics. First up, we looked at what makes a child a genius and how do you spot them? We also talked with a child prodigy who's now all grown up. Christopher Gurren was crowned Britain's brainiest kid aged 12, but that was two decades ago. Now he's a maths teacher and we found out how his life has changed. Meanwhile, as the UK monarch King Charles writes a children's book explaining climate change, we asked what is the best way to talk to children about global warming? Simon Cook, the director of EcoVenture, who provide holiday adventure camps for children in the UAE, joined us alongside environmental analyst Tatiana Antonelli from Goombook. And with International School Meals Day fast approaching, we discussed whether packed lunches are better than school-cooked meals and what teachers can do if their pupils start looking unhealthy. Claire Turnbull from Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, talked to us about that, while Ben Tobit from Ben's Farmhouse gave us the school caterer's view. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We want to turn our attention now to the children right here in the UAE who are still in school, because... I mean, it's worth mentioning exceptional pupils here in the UAE can make a real difference, not just to their own lives, but to the lives of their parents, because those who get exceptional grades can get awarded golden visas, not just for them, but also for their families. But how can you tell if a child is a genius. Now, earlier I spoke to Helen Green. She's the gifted and talented manager across Cognita schools, Middle East and India. Now, she said that firstly, we have to be careful on how we interpret the meaning of the word. I think we've got to be quite mindful about the definition genius because that tends to bring up more images of, you know, Einstein or Mozart or or Newton, etc. And and I guess the definition of genius is more somebody who has actually done something really notable you know within history so gifted I guess is more the the term we would use for for children and even that has over 200 definitions you know formal definitions so there is no universally um accepted definition of gifted uh so so that, that I guess is the first thing how can you tell that they're gifted? Well, there are all sorts of different flags, I guess, that you would see with children. Uh, they might be, uh, they might have obviously the the obvious uh, learning more easily, advanced learning, quicker learning. They may be, they may have advanced vocabulary. They might start talking early. They may have uh, various sort of quirky things like uh, um, an advanced sense of humour or they may be uh, children who prefer to have um, interactions with peers who are older than them. Uh, so there's all sorts of different um, different things uh, that would flag up a child who may have that um, whatever we want to call that gifted label, whether that's um, whether it's high potential, whether it is gifted. Gifted, I guess. It's not particularly descriptive or precise, but people know what it means. So I think I think that's the thing to take away from this, that gifted doesn't really mean that they are going to be the next, um, you know, Mozart or Einstein or whatever. It means that they are probably working at a level level significantly above their peers in one way or another. 
Is it helpful if you suspect that your child might be exceptionally good at maths or languages? Is it helpful to get them tested? You know, for example, to do the Mensa test? Um, I would say it has its limitations. Um, Within the schools in Dubai, we... uh, just about all do the cognitive ability test, the CAT4 test, which is a really good indication of your innate ability uh, verbally and in number, in spatial awareness and in nonverbal. So I would say it's certainly not an essential um, element. If children arrive at a school or if children are, uh, if, if teachers are presented with a Mensa test, IQ test, we will put that into a sort of bank of different things that we would assess for. So we wouldn't say, oh, okay, so you've had that Mensa, that's that's it. You're definitely, we're taking that as the uh, sort of blueprint for us. We would be looking at the CAP tests. We would be looking at characteristics, um, all sorts of different characteristics that we can see within the classroom, we would be asking teachers for their assessment of the child, because it's not just all about academic ability. It's very much about the motivation of the child. It's very much about their creativity, their resilience. And it's that whole package, really, that makes them who they are and and makes us think, actually, they need some provision that's slightly different to the provision that we we are offering to some of the other students in the class, you know, just in that challenge for all, really, I guess. Yes, I mean, that does lead me into my next question rather nicely. You know, can normal schools support unusually intelligent pupils? And I think we've all stood next to somebody at the school gates where they sort of mentioned that their child is, you know, getting is in an extra class because they're so brainy. Uh, And that sort of always pricks my slight sort of uh, competitive uh, antennae at that point. And then you have to sort of discipline your brain. Um, But yes, can normal schools support them or do they need to go to to a special school? Yep, definitely normal schools can support um, can support them. There are all sorts of different strategies that schools can use. Uh, there are obviously the differentiation happens within the classroom. We're very much into challenge for all in education now, but we're also very much mindful of the fact that some children need even greater depth in their learning. So that problem solving and reasoning and critical thinking are coming to the fore more and more uh, for gifted students as well as others because you know we've got all the we've got all the knowledge there it's what we do with it um increasingly you know with chat gpt etc we we can find anything out but then so what what can we do with it and that's going to be the important thing going forwards and that's the thing that I think certainly children with high potential, high capability, have that advantage to be able to start critically thinking about things. Um, So yeah, within schools, uh, there are a variety of different things um, that we can do. We will look at greater depth, we will have enrichment classes, and different schools do different things. You know, across um, the group of the, the cognitive group that I work with, we all do different things, and it depends on each child's needs. Um, you know, every gifted child is different in one way or another. So it may be that we do enrichment classes. It may be that we have mentorship programs for them. They might be offered passion projects. Uh, they may have flexibility within the curriculum to be able to um, to, to sort of um, do a different lesson when another lesson is happening. Um, some schools do 
accelerate to a certain extent. It's not something that is uh, recommended or or uh, done as a matter of course because students really uh, sometimes struggle with isolation. So if we push them ahead, there are two questions. Where do they go after they've done their GCSE at age seven or eight? And what does that impact them with their peers? So making sure that a child is within their peer group is almost as important, if not more important, than that they're academically challenged. Um, Because you do find generally that a lot of uh, gifted students do have other emotional issues, uh, issues of perfectionism, issues of fear of failure, etc. So we have to be very mindful of the way that we challenge students and the way that um, that will work best for them. Because as I say, they're all different. So we can't say, oh, well, they're all going to go this way or they're all going to go that way. Uh, we, we just have to really uh, be very mindful of their social emotional needs as well as their academic uh, needs. Interesting stuff there. Helen Green, the gifted and talented manager across Cognita schools, Middle East and India. We will be continuing our conversation with her in the next few minutes. Namely, she basically tells us, well, we asked her about whether or not you can be good at one subject, but really not very good at the others, whether that still qualifies you uh, as a genius. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personal learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Okay, welcome back to Eye on Education. You are listening to The Agenda on Dubai 103.8 and we are carrying on our discussion on the programme now about how you can spot whether your child is a genius or exceptionally talented at a certain subject. Earlier I spoke to Helen Green. She is the gifted and talented manager across Cognita schools, Middle East and India. And she told me she's often come across students who display exceptional aptitude in one subject but struggle in others. Yeah, definitely. So we look at students um, in the all-round sense. So we will look at them and say, actually, yes, these students have got um, the, the potential to achieve across a wide range. We do tend to find uh, certainly... In the younger years, we do find a specialism in one thing. So, so definitely uh, an interest in maths or uh, or high potential in maths and in English are, are very often seen. Obviously, the sporting elements, uh, you can often see students who are uh, showing great aptitude there. We have to also there consider physical ability and if a student's had a growth spurt a lot um, a lot sooner than another one then they may just be physically stronger um you know same with reading we might have a child who comes to school who can read and then levels out because they've had a very rich reading environment at home and have come in at a higher level than some other students who may not have done um, or who may not have English as uh, their first language and then move on to um, to, to being an excellent reader in English anyway. Uh, so, yeah, definitely we find that. And we also find that generally gifted students will have a passion. They will have something that they 
really, really want to um, to, to research and develop further and that they're a, an absolute fount of knowledge uh, in. And that can be really bizarre things as well. You know, often dinosaurs is one of them for younger students. You know, they absolutely, um, <laughs> they absolutely love it. So yeah, the, the, there are all sorts of, of different subject areas that they obviously can excel in, music, uh, art, um, and we do also find all round students. Is it something that you could grow out of? So if you were a, you know, a gifted child when you were younger, could you by the time you're 13 or 14 just become slightly average if it's not nurtured? I would say, yeah, no, that's the key bit, if it's not nurtured. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would say if you are gifted, if you are working significantly ahead of your peers, I would say, yes, it's a lifelong trait. Um, if the environment is um, is conducive, if um, interpersonal factors, you know, such as um, family support, peers is conducive, then I would say, no, you don't grow out of giftedness, but it does that. That key thing is that it's nurtured. So definitely it's important to think that we need to make sure within school, if we've got those students who are potentially high ability or actually demonstrating that high ability, that we are nurturing it. And, and that from home as well, we're thinking about what's happening at home, what's happening in, in their environment, what works for them. So there are lots of um, outside catalysts for giftedness. Um, so the, there's a, a sort of well-respected model by Gagne's who sort of suggests that giftedness uh, it happens, it's, it's there within you, but it isn't transformed into talent unless you have all these other interpersonal environmental um, catalysts supporting you. And that's where schools obviously come in, that's where family and parents obviously come in so very much within schools it's a three-way partnership it's the schools it's the students and it's the parents who are really supporting those those uh, children to be able to achieve as as well as they can um and not putting them under too much pressure but equally letting them reach their potential that is Helen Green there, gifted and talented manager across Cognita Schools, Middle East and India. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Right, taking a look now at a subject that has always fascinated me. So that is Minuet and Trio in G major, which Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart composed when he was only five years old. Despite his youth, you can hear it's excellent, but it does raise the question, do we still make geniuses like that anymore? Not just in music, but in other fields like maths, tech, literature. And I'd like to ask you, is there anyone that you've heard of uh, that you would nominate as a genius of our age? You're not allowed to say Elon Musk. 
That's the only one you're not allowed to ask because, yes, he is a genius. Get in touch, 4001, uh, or you can message me on 04871 Meanwhile, a four-year-old boy has made headlines this week after becoming the United Kingdom's youngest member of Mensa, which is that society for people with crazily high IQs. Teddy, who can count to 100 in six languages, including Mandarin, is already far more advanced than his peers. But what happens to children like Teddy when they grow up? Well, let's find out. I'm joined now by Christopher Gurin. Uh, 20 years ago, he was crowned Britain's brainiest kid aged 12, beating thousands of children uh, on a TV show. He was a child genius, but where is he now? Well, he joins me now at the moment. Uh, Christopher, how are you? Thanks for joining us on Teams. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me on this morning. I'm very well, thank you. Hope you're doing well as well. Thank you. Yes, all good. A pleasure to have you here. Tell me, what do you do now? So I am an assistant principal and former head of maths at a secondary school. Uh, but alongside that, I've completed three master's degrees and I'm currently a PhD student. OK, it's so interesting that you've stuck with maths. You've done three mm-hmm. masters, but now intriguingly, you're teaching other children, which must give you a real insight into what it's like to be a gifted child because you've got your own perspective. And of course, then you can see the children you teach. What was it like back then when you were 12 and you won Britain's brainiest kid? Did you feel different? Did it, Was it a good experience? It was a brilliant experience, actually. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was um, a really strange time for me and my family because we had uh, news crews outside the house, different uh, radio stations, TV stations, phoning up for interviews back then as well. Um, And I'm a huge football fan and I was invited to meet the Aston Villa team and sit with the chairman to watch a game after winning the show. So it was a, a really brilliant time all round. Do you think you were naturally good at maths or are your te- are your parents secret maths professors? So um, I think it is a bit of both. So my parents are both very intelligent, but uh, due to where they grew up, they both left school. Um, dad left school at 14, mom at 17. They moved to the UK to get jobs. So they didn't go to university or anything like that. But they were always very supportive of my education. So they made sure that I made the most of the opportunities that I had. But I think there was an element of natural ability there as well. I always pick things up very quickly in school. Did you feel that your extraordinary intelligence excluded you at any time? No. And I think, again, I've got my parents and teachers to thank for that, that they made sure that I had a lot of opportunities. Um, The school I went to was a a grammar school in the UK. So it was um, a state school. We didn't have to pay any fees, but you had to pass a test to get in. Uh, So that meant that I was uh, surrounded by other academically able pupils as well. So that created that ethos where learning was a really good thing and that succeeding in that was a, a real thing to aim for. So you're not conforming to my stereotypes of what a genius should be, because if the three masters conforms, but then the fact that you're able to communicate with children and communicate your education, it feels slightly different. You often think of geniuses as sort of living in the cloud, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's like like with anything you look at, no two people are the same. And I mean, this this kind of genius tag as well, like um, it's something that that's such a wide ranging uh, tag that you'll you'll get lots of people who are real specialized experts in just one thing or you'll get other people who, like myself, have 
high IQs and have done very well in in something or other, but are also good at communicating and uh, have other talents as well. Absolutely fascinating to speak to you. I've got 10 more seconds. If you you were speaking to a parent of a gifted child now, would you have any advice? Absolutely. Just uh, encourage their interests and support them. Make sure that they're they're happy and feeling successful in their lives and um, find out what they're interested in and what you can do to support. But don't feel that you need to be an expert in that to support them to succeed. Oh, amazing stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us at a short notice right here on the agenda on Ion Education on Dubai Eye 103.8. That is Christopher Guerin there. Uh, he was crowned Britain's brainiest kid 20 years ago, uh, beating thousands of other children. And he now works uh, as an assistant principal, former head of maths uh, at a school in the United Kingdom. This is Eye on Education on the agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back to the programme. So the UK's King Charles has co-written a children's book about the environmental threat that the planet is facing. Interesting stuff. It's called Climate Change. It's a ladybird book, which is a blast from the past if you grew up in the United Kingdom. And it will be published next month with an aim to empower young people by making the topic accessible for seven to 11 year olds. Now, King Charles has spent much of his life campaigning to protect the environment. And he focuses often in particular on the role of children and young people in bringing about change. I'm old enough to have a grandson. Like you, he's learning how climate change is causing the big storms and floods, the droughts, fires and food shortages we're seeing around the world. When I was his age, people had no idea about the damage they were doing. But by the time I was a teenager, I started to see that if we didn't stop polluting our planet, we would face a very dangerous future indeed. That is His Royal Highness, of course, King Charles. And it has got us thinking here on Dubai Eye 103.8. What is the best way to talk to children about climate change? Joining me now uh, is somebody who's made a career out of teaching children and also informing them about the natural world. Simon Cook, he's the director of EcoVenture, who provide holiday adventure camps for children in the UAE. Joining me now on Teams. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? Good morning, George. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you with us. Tell me a little bit about how you talk to children about climate change. Is it something that you, I suppose, involve in your courses, in your holiday camps, which, of course, mostly take place outdoors? Yes, um, absolutely. I suppose, um, you know, know, environmental awareness and climate change is quite a big sort of concept. And our approach, with uh, especially with children, is, is firstly to really get them sort of connected to the environment. Um, I think sort of the biggest challenge with our society, especially with children growing up in cities and in in recent times, is they don't see themselves as part of nature. They very much see us as humans and nature as separate things. And if if you're not feeling part of of that, why would you sort of care about it? So I think this this whole concept of uh, like climate change is such a big abstract idea for children to comprehend. So our sort of approach is really to sort of get them outside and really connecting with the environment and sort of understanding and enjoying that time outside. And through that sort of connection that we build is is getting them to sort of appreciate it uh, for what it is. And then, you know, hopefully as well become, you know, better stewards for it. 
So on its simplest level, you're paddling through the mangroves with a pack of 10-year-olds and at that stage you start a conversation about the way mangroves are good for the environment. Is it kind of that vibe? That, that, that's exactly it. Um, I'll, I'll give an example uh, talking about the mangroves is, um, you know, we, we take a group of children out to the mangroves, the, the forest up in the northern, you know, one of the northern emirates, and we take them out and we get them having fun and enjoying just, you know, being outside to start with. So, you know, it's muddy, it's wet, it's a little bit smelly. We get them having fun and really enjoying it and appreciating the environment for what it is. You know, we, we see all the different crabs and we talk about them. And then sort of what we will do is we'll send them on a treasure hunt. And the children will go out and they have a list of things that they need to collect and they'll bring them back. And, you know, there'll be pieces of plastic and little bits of metal and nets. And, you know, they they get points for collecting certain things. But then we sort of start to ask those questions sort of, you know, how do you think this got here? You know, what do you think? So where do you think it's come from? And then, you know, what this sort of, you know, what do you think the problems with, you know, this sort of piece of plastic or this net being here is and what sort of problems could it cause for the you know, for the, the natural environment. And we sort of just get them engaged. We get them having fun and appreciating that that place, that location for what it is, but then bringing them, you know, some awareness for, you know, what sort of impact that humans are having on that environment. Do you also talk to them about solutions? Because one of the big phrases that we've been hearing a lot in the education space recently is this concept of eco-anxiety, where Children know that there's something wrong. They have this sense of impending doom, but they don't feel they have the tools to deal with it. They don't feel like they have the solutions. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that we do sort of we do talk to them about. And like I was listening to you before and you were speaking about that children feel hopeless and powerless. And it's very, you know, very daunting for them. But our sort of approach is you can always do something. And it doesn't need to be, uh, you yeah, know, we're not trying to solve the whole solution right now, but making things, you know, like, you know, t- going for a walk instead of driving, um, eating sort of, you know, some, you know, less meat. If you see some rubbish on the ground or, you know, when you're swimming at the beach, you know, pull it out of the water because it's only going to go flow into the, you know, the marine environment. So it's about talking to them about just making sort of making those little changes in their life that, you know, make a positive impact on, you know, not just, you know, not just the physical environment, but also having an influence on their community. And the great thing about Dubai as a city, it's a global city. And if we can make those people have positive influences and impacts, you know, then they go home and, you know, they take that influence with them and hopefully sort of, you know, uh, branch that out and, and get other people to, to to follow them. Absolutely brilliant to speak to you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I think uh, both of my children have been on one of your camps, coincidentally, uh, up in the Northern Emirates. Uh, so that's Simon Cook there, uh, Director of EcoVenture. They provide holiday adventure camps for children in the UAE and also further afield if you want to get involved. Thank you very much indeed for your time. And if you're feeling inspired listening to this and you want to be part of a community action, just worth mentioning that I know that this weekend a lot of people are planning to head down to Sunset Beach in Dubai to help with the cleanup of those tiny little plastic polyethylene bowls. There was a big um, polluting, a polluting incident last weekend and I know there's still millions of these tiny balls on the beach there uh, and people are coming together as a community to try to clear the beach of that pollution. So I think if you just you just need to head down. You just need a black bin bag and a sieve, as far as I can tell. Uh, and then you can help with that community effort alongside, of course, Dubai Municipality. Now, you are listening to Eye on Education right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Up next, we're going to continue this conversation with environmental analyst Tatiana Antonelli, who's the founder and CEO of the sustainability action group Goombook. 
This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back to Eye on Education on the Agenda. You're listening to Dubai Eye 103.8. And we're in the midst of a fascinating conversation about the best way to speak to children about climate change so that they can feel galvanised to act, but also empowered rather than anxious. Really tricky subject. Uh, And it all comes after the UK monarch King Charles has written a children's book about the environmental threats that the planet is facing. It is due to be published next week. Got us talking uh, and of course we like to do that on the radio as well. So we're joined now by environmental analyst Tatiana Antonelli. She's the founder and CEO of the Sustainability Action Group Consultancy. Tatiana, good morning. How are you? Good morning, George. I'm good. And you? Very well, indeed. And I know that this subject of eco-anxiety uh, as, and how it can be suffered by our teens and young people is, is a hot topic for you. You've actually, you know, created a course. Am I right? Yes, we've created um, a program called Learn, Do, Share for students to learn about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which is a framework from the United Nations that helps understand the goals, we're fi- the challenges we're facing today, but also uh, giving uh, um, a framework to find solutions and to do it step by step. And this, I think it's for both children and adults, It's a good way to see how to start. When we talk about climate change and environmental challenges, we feel overwhelmed. We don't know where to start from. So this is where the anxiety comes from. And this is where with children, it's important to, yes, talk about what is happening, but also telling them about what they can do and always making them feel part of the solution. Uh, This is definitely priority. Now, what I love about this project is that it sort of teams up your professional life with your personal life as well, because you have teenage boys, don't you? I do. I have a 17 and 15 year old boys and I have an eight year old boy. So I can see at uh, both stages the mistakes I did with the first two. I'm trying not to do it with the the little one. Uh, The way I talk about climate change and environmental issues about my work and, and, and the job I do Definitely my narrative has changed and I make sure that um, it's positive, it's encouraging and uh, they see themselves uh, a part of it, of the solution or, or the engagement. And um, children are ready for it. It's uh, it's in their nature. Yesterday I was in a beautiful talk by Her Excellency uh, Razana Mubarak and she was explaining how children have the connection with nature since the moment they're born and they lose it with time. They lose it because, you know, they have so many things to do and they go to school and somehow uh, are, as adults, we, we, we make them lose that connection. So first thing I would say for me is to create the connection with the children and, and nature. I take them out as much as possible. I want them to enjoy nature, understand how beautiful it is and how much it gives back to us. Uh, humans and how we are able to, you know, live on this planet because the nature we know today is a humankind nature. Nature will evolve and this is where the problem is. Nature will always be there and it will evolve. The nature we know today is the one that is good for us humans um, as a species. 
nature might, might evolve in something that's not friendly anymore for us. And um, this is where we talk about, you know, extinction. And um, of course, uh, I think there are beautiful uh, documentaries that are, are, are important, such as the one um, about, you know, um, uh, David Attenborough, where they talk about the problem of, of, of nature changing, of uh, biodiversity loss, um, mass extinctions. But all these documentaries at the end always give the positive side of it. What can we do that there is still time? And, and, and I think we need to continue that narrative of we can do something. So at school, at my children's school at the moment, they're doing a sort of eco week. And it's made me realise that I am definitely one of those people. I don't have eco anxiety. I have eco discouragement. Like I'd have that feeling that I just, you know, we can't make a difference. So what's the point? And I slightly fear that I'm not passing on the right messages to my children as a consequence. Do you think it is the responsibility of a parent in this day and age to bring our children up to realise that they are going to need to take part in climate action? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think our role today is to empower adults. When we talk about environmental education, yes, it is important for our children, but more than ever, it's important for our generation. We are the ones today that take decisions from a personal point of view, but also from a business point of view. And these decisions are the ones that can you know, make a difference. Are we reducing our consumption um, in terms of you know, uh, food or water, electricity? We need to lead by example our children. And I think we don't need to go there and tell them about the global challenges, saying, you know, uh, there's the melting of the ice and overpopulation and food scarcity and water scarcity. No, we need to tell them we are, you know, reducing our water and electricity bill because it's good for the environment. So I would show action and tell them what is the consequence of that action. That is the first step. In terms of adults perceiving climate change, for example, you're right. It's generally, I can see there is um, discouragement. But the main reason is because we don't really know what climate change is. If you ask someone, do you know what it is? No, they're just scared of it. They hear about climate change on the radio and the media. And now we're hosting COP, the Conference of Parties about climate change. So there's a lot of pressure. But... People don't know. They don't know what are the causes, uh, what's the whole development around it and, and the consequences of climate change. So it's like anything around us. If we don't understand, then how can we take action? So one of the main things we're doing with schools and universities, but also a lot with companies at the moment, is we run a workshop called the Climate Fresk. It's a game of cards. It's two hours um, activity whereby you end up playing with different cards, uh, putting down the whole narrative of climate change. And the last hour is uh, more about a debrief on how do you feel as an individual, what can you do, but also how do you see your business, your company taking action. And the results are fascinating. People come out of that training or that workshop with a much clear vision of what climate change is, what they can do, and uh, how to talk about it. Because it's important to talk about it when we have dinner, we, when we are with our friends. It's not a subject that's only related to government and policy and 
the UN. No, it's about all of us and, and, and daily, daily actions. Really fascinating there to hear that not only do we need to learn how to talk to our children about climate change, but we need to learn how to talk to each other about climate change. Thank you so much, uh, Tatiana Antonelli there, environmental analyst and the founder and CEO of the Sustainability Action Group. Goombook, joining us right here on Eye on Education on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. This is Eye on Education on the agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to Eye on Education on the agenda right here on Dubai Eye 103.8. And it's fair to say we've had a big focus on food all over this week, mostly on on food waste and water. But with International School Meals Day fast approaching, we're turning our attention to children's nutrition. It is a big issue here in the UAE, quite literally, because 30 to 40% of children in the Emirate are classed as obese. I just wanted to pause on that number slightly. 30 to 40% of children in the Emirate classed as obese. So let's discuss that topic and how it can be dealt with in the school forum. Uh, I also wanted to discuss whether packed lunches are better than school cooked meals and what teachers can do if their pupils start looking unhealthy. Two fantastic experts joining me live right now. Uh, one is in the studio, that is Ben Tobit. He is the chef, CEO and founder of Ben's Farmhouse. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. You're very welcome. Thank you for having Lovely me. Lovely to have you in the studio. <laughs> and then of course, we have Claire Turnbull, who is the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, uh, joining us on Teams, having recently closed the, cl- the school doors at midday. Lovely to speak to you, Claire. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good to be with you. Lovely to have you with us. Yes, so, so much to talk about when we're, when we're discussing nutrition and school meals. I'm going to come out and say I am a packed lunch mum. Uh, I, don't, I can't say I do it myself. My lovely nanny helps me with the packed lunches in the morning. Uh, so we send food in, although I know that my school does offer it as a catered option. Uh, now, when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk about a hot school meal being essential for children. Claire, I'm going to get the teacher's perspective first. Is that still the case, do you think? So I don't think it's necessarily the case that it needs to be a hot school meal. What I think, that, I think we all know, don't we, that the most important thing is that our children are getting a high level of quality nutrition in the middle of the day to really empower their learning for the afternoon. So um, that can be through packed lunches, um, so long as those packed lunches are really balanced. And it can be through school lunches, so long as those school lunches are are well balanced. I think it was perhaps slightly different for those of us who grew up in the UK, where it was really cold. And actually having the hot part of the lunch um, uh, helped our well-being. I think now it's about understanding the nutritional benefits and working out what's really going to feed the uh, our children so that they can be really healthy. How often do you see children arriving in school with dodgy packed lunches? And we all know what dodgy means. It means Nutella sandwiches and crisps and sweetie bars. Um we give our children quite, we give our parents quite a high um, uh, guidelines of what we think are what's healthy food. Um, and if if those packed lunches aren't 
balanced, we will we start a conversation with the parents so that we can explain why we think it's important. It's not about us being rules heavy. It's about us having a conversation of 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 the reasons why I think. Okay, so if you are one of those parents listening now and you know that on occasion, maybe come Thursday or Friday when you've been stressed at work and you haven't got much to do, your packed lunch might fall into the slightly dodgy category. I know that that has happened when I was doing the packed lunches. I've definitely sent in a jam sandwich in the past, which I'm sure isn't nutritionally very good. And on those days, it probably certainly would have been better if I'd gone for the catered school meal. Ben, I'm sure you're in no doubt at all which is better, the packed lunch or the or the catered school meal. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. It's um, not necessarily about uh, it being a hot meal, but it's about uh, balance. Uh, it's a key word here. Um, we do a range of meals for schools uh, depending on their requirements and the facilities they have. So uh, we do hot meals for some, but we also do pat lunches for others as well. Oh, so you do a combination of, of the, the two? We do, yeah. I mean, obviously schools are not, don't always have the facilities, they don't always have the kitchens, they don't always have the hot plates. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something we do as well. So the big test for you, and this is one of the reasons why my children got a jam sandwich, is because <laughs> they, for some reason, that week had decided that a cheese sandwich was worth, the, you know, worse than beetles, you know, yeah. for, for lunch. Uh, how do you manage to, to, to sort of track that difficult line between providing nutritious meals that fussy children are going to want to eat? Uh, it's obviously difficult and it was um, something when we when we started that I was fairly nervous about. Um, we all know that children can sometimes be quite difficult about what they want to eat. Um, I was absolutely amazed and pleasantly surprised on how um, accepting the children have been on what we're trying to implement. Um, we found out a lot of things along the way that have, we've learned from. Um, and we're actually finding to be really accepting. Um, I think one of the key points here and, and what really, really surprised me is when you're having a relationship with the children in terms of communication, even things as small as say, uh, saying hello in the morning, stuff like that, it's, it almost starts to build this trust thing between you. And they seem to be far more accepting of, of you preparing their meals and trying to encourage them to try new things. Okay, so I know that you've been running your company for the last three years or so, which means you started during COVID, which is very interesting. Can you give me a sense of the types of meals that you might do? You know, do you pull in interesting things like ingredients, like olives, yeah. for example? Um, so uh, Ben's Farmhouse is also focused on trying to use locally sourced produce. So um, sustainability, food security are also top of our agenda. Um but we also need to kind of understand that, you know, children have favourites. And I think what we try to do more is try to put a healthy twist on the favourites that they enjoy. Um, we do introduce new ingredients, as I've said, and some children are more accepting than others. Um, but I think it's kind of recognisable favourites done in a healthy way, which kind of seems to hit the mark. It must be one of the hardest <laughs> jobs in the world. If you think about every single parent who makes their children food each day knows that things can be discarded day after day or mm. and then all of a sudden become the favourite. Mm. So to be a school caterer must be, <laughs> like with hundreds of children, must be pretty impossible. Uh, we've just had a message come through, which is a very interesting um, question. Amanda, thank you, saying, what about vegan options? Is that mm. something that you're considering mm. as a caterer? Um, again, um, Throughout my career, actually, as well as uh, you know, when we launched Ben's Farmhouse, we always tried to have a nice range of uh, food. 
taking into account intolerances, allergens, um, all these kind of things. So we naturally already had those products in our range. Um, and they're across the school menu in terms of the grab and go, as well as the hot meals. Um, for our meal plans, there's always the option vegetarian as well as uh, non-vegetarian. And we're always happy to speak to parents. Um, we're very flexible. Um, if there's something specific they want us to put together for them, we're more than happy to do that. Claire, would you prefer children to all take up the catered school meal or, or do you not mind the packed lunches? I know that in my school where my kids go, they if they're having the school meal, then there's a little bit more of a focus on knives and forks and, and, and table manners, or at least that's the impression I get as a packed lunch mum. And I think that I think that's very true. Um, you, we, uh, we as teachers sit and eat with the children, and to me, that's when we're talking about food and nutrition. The nutrition bit is very important, but the environment is equally important. And so um, learning from other children, learning from having adults modeling, trying things and different things is, is a really positive environment. We are, I, I know quite unusual that we sit down, we have a dining hall, we sit down as adults with the children. And, uh, and so therefore the children who are eating the hot food absolutely they're eating the same as us that immediately starts those conversations back home um in a as in most private schools in the uk um one wouldn't really have an option everybody has cicated um and that's done very clearly to to really build the social skills that then lead to healthy eating habits as well. But I think you can do it. So we have um, we we have nearly three quarters, two thirds to three quarters of our, our pupils um, take the hot, the catered food, um, and then uh, about a third bring in packed lunches. Really interesting conversation we're having here. We're going to continue it after the break. Uh, that, that voice you just heard, that's Claire Turnbull. She's the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Also in the studio with me, Ben Tobit, who is the chef, CEO and founder of Ben's Farmhouse, who provide catered meals uh, for schools here in the UAE. Uh, plenty to talk about. Do add your voice to the conversation. I'd love to hear uh, whether you like the school meals that your child has at school or whether you have chosen to do the packed lunches. Also, I'm really keen to ask Claire and Ben about what you do when you're facing an obesity crisis, which we are, frankly, in this country, uh, how you confront that in the, you know, behind the school gates. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yes, welcome back to Eye on Education. You're listening to The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. Now, we're putting a big focus on food all of this week. Uh, today, as it's Eye on Education, we're obviously talking about school meals. And to discuss this thorny topic, I have Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, and Ben Tobit, who's the chef, CEO and founder of Ben's Farmhouse. Uh, they've kept with me because we are mid-conversation at the moment. And I promised Claire that when I came back to her, I was going to ask her the difficult question of how you deal with children who are putting on weight and whether or not a child's weight is a school's responsibility. Now, the reason why I'm asking this question isn't just out of the blue. It's because 30 to 40% of children in the Emirate are classed as obese. And obviously, that's a parental responsibility. But at what stage does the school need to step in? Claire, 
It's an easy question, isn't it? <laughs> no. Well, actually, I think it is ah. because I because I just think it's part of our young people's well-being. So um, uh, it's about conversations, and surely the most successful schools are working in partnership with uh, parents. And so it's about having that conversation. What can we do to help? What are you doing at home? Can we support? Can we make sure the same messages are are involved? Um, um, uh, and, and what can we do to make sure that if actually you're working very hard with your child to either reduce portion sizes or to reduce snacks, well, then we make sure that we're uh, supporting those decisions within school. And I think a cohesion is really important for our young people, that they're hearing the same messages at home and at school. And I'd say that's about everything to do with well-being and nutrition and obesity and all of those things are part of it. So I genuinely don't think it's a it's a difficult question. That doesn't mean it always goes down well with parents, but that's about how we have hopefully really good relationships with our parents um, and those relationships are formed before you have to have those more challenging conversations. Really interesting to, to hear there that those conversations are, you know, and do have to take place. Ben, obviously, as a school caterer, the portion size and the calorific content of each meal, it must be rele- very relevant to you. Is it something that you'd specifically measure? Do you know how many calories a child should have per day? 100%. It's um, all of our meals, all our food um, is submitted to Dubai Municipality for approval. Um, there are certain weights uh, per item and proportion that are allowed. And before any food is uh, served and consumed in any of the schools, we, we get all the approvals from Dubai Municipality. Um, all of our nutritional facts are actually on our packaging, so you can scan the, the QR. It will give you a breakdown of, of all the calories and nutrition in, in all of our products. Interesting stuff. I mean, you have now worked, Claire, across you know, the UK and now here in a different jurisdiction, uh, the UAE. I've got about a minute left with you. Do you think that the rules here in the UAE are stricter regarding, for example, what food you're allowed in schools, you know, the vending machines, that kind of discussion? To be fair, not not stricter than the rules or rather the, the choices that we make in the independent sector in the UK. So in the, you know, we wouldn't have vending machines apart from in sixth form centres, perhaps. Um, we uh, certainly at the Royal Grammar School, where you, we had very careful caterers that we worked closely with, that our pupils worked closely with. Uh, so that I wouldn't say it is different, um, uh, but my experience is very much from private schools in the UK. I, I understand that. So do you think, how about how about you, Ben? Do you think the rules here are stricter about how they go about things? Uh, if I'm completely honest, uh, probably not. Um, <laughs> as we've gone along the journey, we've kind of, uh, I mean, my head chef, Chris, you know, his children are, uh, attend a school where there doesn't seem to be any focus on this and they're not monitoring what the children are eating and I think um, it needs to toughen up a little if I'm completely honest I think there's certainly room for improvement there. 
Interesting stuff and, and a very interesting point for us to end our conversation on food for thought. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Uh, but lovely <laughs> to have both of you on the programme. Thank you very much indeed. Claire Turnbull, the principal of Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, and uh, Ben Tobit, the chef, CEO and founder of Ben's Farmhouse. An absolutely fascinating uh, conversation with both of you. And it does bring us to the close of this week's Eye on Education here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. It's been a good one. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.